Hello, you're listening to a podcast from Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Radio Maria is a 24-7 Catholic radio station broadcasting online via our app, Radio Maria Play, and on DAB in an increasing number of areas. You can follow us on social media. And if you enjoy this program, please do click like and subscribe to us on your podcast provider. Radio Maria relies entirely upon listener donations. We have no other sources of funding, so please do consider supporting us with a monthly or one-off donation so that we can continue to keep providing great programming free at the point of access. To donate or find out more, visit us at radiomariaengland.uk. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Radio Maria. This is Credo, a program that nourishes you in your Catholic faith. And today we continue with a series from Merivale Institute. And today is going to be the the second part of this series is going to be given by Dr. Um, Michael Cullinan. Hello, Father. Hello. How are you? I am very well. Good. I was a little bit unsure whether to call you doctor or father or to combine the two there. So I had had a moment of hesitation, but needless to say, you are both. And um, I've had the pleasure of studying under you at Maryvale and also the pleasure of hosting you once before in a series just like this in summer. Um, And I wonder if maybe you would tell our listeners a little bit about what Maryvale is before we get going. Well, Maryvale is an international distance learning college that specializes in theology and philosophy. And it was founded in 1980 as the Birmingham Diocesan Catechetical Institute. And the first undergraduate program was set up in 1990 and we achieved full ecclesiastical recognition in 2008 and since covid we have had to give up our meetings at maryvale house which was newman's first catholic home in england and have gone largely but not exclusively online enabling us to provide teaching to students in far-flung countries without them having to travel and also to hire staff in far-flung countries. Um, We are hoping to reintroduce a personal face-to-face element in our programs and we have recently admitted a record number of undergraduates into our first year for the Bachelor of Divinity program um, which I have been directing in its previous incarnation at least and subsequently since 2009 right yes very interesting so basically it's a distance learning um 
university at the moment where people can take courses anywhere in the world and you train people for the priesthood but you also train um, lay uh, uh, confirmation um, teachers and catechists and people who are also just wanting to take some extra courses in theology. Um, I've done some courses through you. Our priest director, Father Toby, has studied through you before he became a Dominican. Um, so it comes with with uh, the recommendation of, of two Radio Maria, Radio Maria members. Um, and uh, and this series is, is a chance for you as, as Maryville to kind of showcase some of the, the teaching that you give. And um, and also for Radio Maria and Maryvale, which have I think very similar kinds of ethoses to be able to to share um, their missions in that way. So, tell us a bit about what you're going to be talking about today. Well, I'm going to talk about theological studies. At least that was the title I was given. And so I'm going to try and convince you that theology has a place as a an undergraduate degree program and why people should study it and how important it is today and on the basis of my experience of knowing students now for nearly 15 years um, what good it has done people who have studied at Maryvale. Excellent. Well, let's get right into it. And I just want to also mention that our Radio Maria Ireland listeners will be also listening to this um, broadcast. So I just want to welcome them and um, and make them feel at home listening to Radio Maria. So this is being broadcast both in England and Ireland. Over to you, Father. Thank you very much, Tim. Well, to begin... Academics, you know, can sometimes be a rather quarrelsome bunch. At times they quarrel with those in the same subject. Other times they quarrel with those in other subjects. It reminds me of something said over a hundred years ago by a witty Cambridge classicist who enjoyed poking fun at the way the university was governed, or rather not governed most of the time. He wrote a very ironic guidebook for aspiring academic politicians in which he asks a question. What is the difference between a college and a boarding house? The answer he gives is that in a boarding house, the hatred is concentrated on other members of the same establishment, whereas in a college, the hatred is concentrated on rival establishments. Certainly, if there has to be quarrelling, it would be nicer to work in a department that only quarrelled with other departments. But one would hope that academics were broad-minded enough to admit the importance of other subjects than their own, particularly in these days when quarrelling amongst each other is liable to result in one department after another being picked off by the political powers that be. One of the subjects that is often picked off today is theology. Not only is it seen as useless, but it is also seen as sectarian indoctrination rather than rational inquiry, particularly in a society that has lost Christian faith, or indeed faith in anything at all. Every year I give an introductory lecture to new students at Maryvale Institute to lay people 
who have committed five years of their lives, and usually over £10,000 in fees, to studying Catholic theology in their spare time. And clearly the first question I have to answer is why? The second question is what? What does theological study consist of today? I'm going to try and answer both of these questions for you this evening. And not only theoretically, but by experience too. I'll end by saying what some of our graduated students have said at the end of their five years. But why do people spend five years of their lives studying Catholic theology? Why does my bishop let me work as a theology programme director instead of being busy in a parish? What use is it? Why do people study it if they don't have to? I can be pretty sure you know that even if one of my students hasn't asked these questions themselves, their friends and spouses certainly will have. I'm going to try to answer these questions, or at least persuade you that our students are not insane and are not wasting their money. Actually, I'm going to go further. I want to convince you not only that Catholic theology is worthwhile, but that it is really a proper academic subject, worthy of a university even in modern secular Britain. I'm even claiming that it is the queen of the sciences, superior to all other subjects. That would get some pretty odd looks at Oxford or Cambridge today. It's a very big claim, but I think it's true. But first, I think we have several questions to answer, such as why bother, why study? why Catholic, and why the way we do it at Maryvale. But it won't make sense to talk about theology at all unless we have some idea of what we mean by the word. I hope you'll know a bit more at the end of this programme. But for now, we need what's called a working definition. I'll use St Anselm's, Fides Querens Intellectum, Theology is faith seeking understanding. This isn't quite the same thing as catechetics, which is explaining the faith to those coming into it, or apologetics, which is giving an account of our faith and our hope to those without Catholic faith, or evangelization, which is bringing people to faith. But if you don't have a good understanding of our faith, Neither catechetics nor apologetics nor evangelization are really possible. So we have to begin with theology. And the first question here has to be, why bother at all? Many priests don't actually like theology. They had to study it in the seminary in order to be ordained. They've often never read a theology book again since they were ordained. In the West, until recently, lay people were never encouraged to study theology for themselves. It's seen as either dangerous or useless, and certainly penitential. There are historical reasons for this. But if you do express an interest in studying theology, 
someone is sure to ask you why you're bothering, and they'll often challenge you like this. It's the heart that counts, not the head. Some of the holiest people I've met don't know a bit of theology. Wouldn't you be better off just saying your prayers? Wouldn't you be better off working for peace? Wouldn't you be better off raising money for CAFOD, or for the church, or cleaning the church, or the presbytery? Behind this is either the idea that only very clever people should think, and you, of course, aren't one of them, or the idea that using our mind is somehow cold, heartless, and calculating, like a kind of celestial accountancy course. I said that theology is faith-seeking understanding, but it's really a way to know God. Now, the English language is a fine thing, but it has its limits. One limit is that it has only one word for know. Most continental languages have two, one for knowing people and one for knowing ideas. We don't know a person the way we know a fact. We don't know God as a fact, but as a mystery and a consuming fire. We don't know God the way we know a person, because since the ascension, he doesn't speak to us in a human voice. The Holy Spirit can teach us about God and can do so through prayer. But it's never easy to discern this, and it can't be the only way for most of us. I simply can't understand how you can claim to love anybody and not want to get to know them better and to know things about them as well. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Of course, knowledge is no substitute for love. Love is more important. But love needs knowledge too. A virtuous man can be ignorant, but this doesn't make ignorance into virtue. Knowledge alone isn't enough to save us, but ignorance can kill. If you do wrong in ignorance, it may not be a sin, but the wrong is still done. You are not expected to know all about the church's law on marriage, but if you put somebody off from coming back to the church because you think they can't receive Holy Communion or get married or have their child baptised, and you're mistaken, you may not be seriously culpable, but the damage will still be done. Often you know all that's important is to know that you don't know, that things are more complicated than you may think. And this is a very good thing to learn, not only in theology, but in many other walks of life too. And this isn't at all the only thing that people learn from theology that's useful in the rest of their lives. Love, as I said, is more important than knowledge. But the truth is that you can't love at all without some knowledge. So all of you who love God already have a theology. The question is not simply whether you want to do theology, but what kind of theology you've already got. Most of us don't like drains and basements. Most academics don't like to worry about the fundamentals of their subject, 
whether it's really valid or not. You try and get an English lawyer to question what law is, for example, or a mathematician to ask how mathematicians, mathematics links with logic. But all subjects have their drains and basements, and drains and basements have to be cleaned out every now and then if they're not to turn into smelly and costly problems for us. Theology has to look a lot at its own drains and basements because they often need cleaning out. Theology has to ask itself fundamental questions like what it is. And our own theologies also need to be brought into the light for a little cleaning every now and then, if they're not to become smelly and costly problems for us too. I myself hadn't asked these fundamental questions for years and years until I started giving my introductory lecture, but it hasn't done me any harm. Often, you know, the reason people, priests as well as laity, get very busy at working for peace or fundraising or building or even praying is that they don't want to face the problems in their own faith. I've left another objection to the last because it's really a bit out of date now, even in the west of Ireland. Years ago, if you wanted to study theology, you'd often have been told that you could be a very good Catholic just by following the teachings of the church along with everybody else. I remember a very learned Irish priest, actually an academic at Cambridge, telling me 40 years ago now that it was better that the people in the West didn't have to think about their faith, that it was just part of their world. But now the storm wind has blown. Even in County Mayo, there are now Jehovah's Witnesses who won't be making their first communion with everyone else. We live in a global village today with many different religions and increasingly militant secular atheism. The big trouble with theology, you see, is that any fool can ask the hard questions. In mathematics, you're much safer. Almost always, nobody outside the club can understand what you're doing or criticize it. But it's the opposite in theology. Any child can ask the hardest questions. Is Jesus the same as God? Why does God allow sickness and war? What happens when we die? I don't think we can survive as Catholics today unless we try to get some good answers, let alone expect the next generation to stay in. I said a moment ago that theology isn't quite the same thing as apologetics or catechesis. It's a different academic subject. We study the things of God for their own sake, because they lead us to him, not simply to make use of them to convert or instruct others, but to lead us to him. But I don't think you'll be much use at converting or instructing others unless you've looked at the principles properly first, seen the problems and avoided simplistic answers. I'll say more of this later. But is Catholic theology really a proper academic subject at all? Academically, who are the greatest enemies of Catholic theology? Luther, perhaps? Dawkins, perhaps? 
I think any list has to include three other names too, Marx, Darwin and Freud. Is religion the opium of the masses? Is it the god of the gaps we don't scientifically understand yet? Is it simply wish fulfillment? We'll break now for a little bit of music. Indeed, we shall. And um, these are really interesting and wonderful questions. We're going to listen to a piece by Chopin. And when we come back, we'll continue with the second part of our Miraville series. listening to Credo on Radio Maria, a program that nourishes you in your Catholic faith. And this is the second part of a six-part series given by Maryville Institute. We're talking about theological studies with Father Michael Cullinan. Father, I'm going to let you continue. Thank you very much. We were asking whether Catholic theology really is a proper academic subject. A lot of people don't think so. I mentioned Dawkins, Marx, Darwin and Freud, for example. The fact is that we now have a situation where theology is being banished from our universities, replaced by philosophy of religion or by nothing apart from business and media studies. 
because most people don't see it as being of any use or because they don't have faith and don't see why a public institution should allow a subject based on faith. God is no longer part of the picture in most places. Theology is seen to be as useless and arcane as ancient Egyptology. You might be surprised that these questions aren't new. In fact, they're very old. The idea that theology is pedantic and arcane was already there before the Reformation. But even much earlier than that, someone else asked many of these same questions before he expounded theology himself. He asked them because he was honest. I think that St Thomas Aquinas is probably the greatest Catholic theologian ever, and certainly one of the greatest human minds ever. Right at the beginning of his last and greatest work, the Summa Theologiae, he asks some of these questions. Let's look a little at what he said. But first I must ask his pardon, because I've reduced what he says into my words, words I hope you will find easier to understand. First he asks, what is the nature and extent of theology, which he calls Sacra Doctrina, sacred teaching. He doesn't actually use the word theology. And he asks ten questions about it. And each time he puts the case against what he thinks first, often more clearly than his opponents themselves. His first question is, isn't philosophy enough? Surely man shouldn't seek to know what is above reason. And isn't all knowledge about truth? Doesn't philosophy deal with everything that we can know by reason? This actually has a very modern ring to it. It's just what the BBC's favourite philosophers say almost every week. Thomas's answer is to ask, what then becomes of scripture? That's not part of philosophy. He claims that it was necessary for our salvation to have knowledge revealed by God besides philosophy because we are directed to God as an end that surpasses our reason. It was necessary for us that God reveal certain truths that exceed human reason. And even those truths that we can discover by reason had to be taught by revelation too, because otherwise they would have been known only by a few and after a long time and with many errors. It really would be strange, wouldn't it, if Christians didn't study the Gospels and the whole of God's dealings with humanity. But study of Scripture isn't easy, particularly today. The BBC philosophers might turn their noses up at doing this, but the alternative of depending on them, or even a few of them, for what we need isn't necessarily a very attractive prospect either. Of course, Thomas is raising more questions here than I can answer in this talk. But I'm here to show you what theology does and why it's important. So glimpses of the food from the menu are all I can give at the moment. If that makes you hungry for more, so much the better. Thomas goes on to say that the same thing can be taught in two different academic subjects, like atoms in both physics and chemistry. So theology pertaining to sacred teaching 
is different from that theology which is part of philosophy, what we now call natural theology. So he's not claiming theology has a monopoly of truth, or that philosophy has nothing to give us, or that it has no right to talk about right and wrong and what we mean by God. Theology isn't the only subject we need. Thomas's next question is the other side of this coin. Is theology a subject at all, or is it just a rag bag of different subjects put together? Our Maryvale program includes philosophy, church history, scripture, dogma, morals, sacraments, catechesis, and apologetics. So it's time to see what Thomas says about this question. He answers that all the different subjects are studied under one aspect as revealed. Theology treats primarily of God and of creatures only as they are referred to God as their beginning or end. So we aren't claiming to take over every other subject. And we look not only at beginnings like science, but also at ends, purposes, something that modern science is rather bad at doing. But if theology is a proper subject, what kind of subject is it? Is it academic or vocational, theoretical or practical? This is a very good question. For example, mathematics is theoretical, but engineering is practical. In most websites for theology jobs in this country, theology is classed as a humanities subject, like English or history, which are completely theoretical. But moral theology deals with what real people ought to do, like medicine and law. So which is it? Thomas answers that it seems to be practical because it is about action and morals. It does include both the speculative, which is Thomas's word for theoretical, and the practical. But because it is principally about God, whose work we are and not our works, it is more speculative than practical. Yet it does consider our actions according as we are ordered to the perfect knowledge of God in which eternal happiness consists. Think about this for a moment. Theology is concerned with our happiness. When did you last hear that said? Now, you might get an Oxbridge professor to concede a place for a theology department, but I doubt if many would accept Thomas's next claim, which is that theology is the noblest of all subjects. Even though the doctorate in divinity still ranks above all the other doctorates, law, medicine, letters, science and philosophy, as ever, Thomas begins with the case against. Theology can't be nobler because it's less certain than other subjects. Dawkins would be cheering here. And doesn't it depend on philosophy? So how can it be higher? But he then says that doctrine is nobler both as a theoretical and as a practical subject because of its greater certitude and its greater value. Other subjects derive their principles from human reason, which can err, but theology gets its principles from the light of the divine knowledge, which cannot be deceived. It just seems less certain to us, because our feeble intellects are dazzled in the divine sun. And it treats of matters which are of higher worth, 
because they transcend human reason. It uses philosophy, but doesn't take its principles from it, but from God. Mm. You'd start quite a row among the professors here, wouldn't you? As a practical subject, theology is also higher because it is ordered to a more important end. For example, politics is higher than military science. Architecture is higher than building science because it decides how and what to build. Sometimes it's not so easy to decide. In medieval universities, law and medicine argued that each was the greater. One deals with the body politic, the other with the individual bodies that make up the body politic. Which is more important? Eventually, at least at Oxford, I think they gave up and agreed to share the same rank. Thomas argues that theology is even greater because it is directed towards eternal happiness, which is ultimately the end of every other practical subject. The next question seems a little abstract at first, but it isn't. Thomas asks whether sacred teaching is wisdom. It seems not to be because it can't direct itself, but has to get its principles from the faith. Neither does it establish the principles of all other subjects. And it is learned by study, whereas wisdom comes from God's inspiration. See the contrasting opposing pictures here. First, the utterly self-sufficient philosophy professor, the philosopher who can question every other subject. And then the person who says to you that you'd be better off just saying your prayers. Thomas answers that theology is wisdom above all other. The wise man judges lesser matters in the light of greater. So the architect is wiser than the builder. But knowledge of the highest cause, God, is the highest knowledge. So those who study it are especially called wise. It gets its principles from the divine knowledge through which all other knowledge is ordered. This knowledge doesn't prove the principles of other subjects. It judges them. What does this say for medical ethics and economics? For what to do about AI? Remember that this was long before the modern papacy with its encyclicals. Actually, all this makes me just a little uncomfortable. I'm a moral theologian, you see. I study and teach about good and bad, right and wrong. And that should make me and other moral theologians models of goodness and right. But it doesn't always work that way. It's all too easy to keep your academic specialism at arm's length from the rest of your life, to make it into just a job. We all know that doctors don't always make good patients. Academics don't always start off better and holier than others. But I don't think you can study theology without it affecting your whole life. I said above that it involves cleaning out our old, maybe childish theologies. And this involves risk, sometimes a kind of spiritual nakedness. What we have to do then is bring this nakedness before God, often with the help of other people to guide us. This should lead to being clothed in better garments, 
and coming closer to God. But it doesn't always work out that way, and it isn't always quick and easy, let alone comfortable. I can agree with Thomas that theology is the queen of the sciences, but that doesn't always make it a comfortable subject to profess. We'll be leaving Thomas in a few moments, but it wouldn't be fair to him not to mention another thing he says. It would be so easy to get the impression from his last answers that theology has a kind of ideological smugness, like a sort of tyrant over all the other academic subjects of inquiry. And the church has sometimes behaved in this way. Even today, many people see it as the epitome of ideological smugness, too like the ideology of Soviet Marxism, imposing the current orthodoxy with no room left for debate or dissent. I said a few minutes ago that we all have a theology and it has to be cleaned out now and then. Too often Catholics are taught things as children and never encouraged to develop their faith as they grow up and mature. Too often they are taught nothing at an adult level or even told not to question their faith lest they lose it. Part of the reason I have devoted most of my priesthood to educating lay people in theology has to do with something I heard decades ago from a church historian called Edward Norman. He was then an Anglican and he argued that the Catholic Church never copes well with an educated laity. It's as if our faith and pastoral practice were still designed for medieval peasants and knights. We teach them as children and then leave them to it. But when we get an educated laity, like late medieval merchants or enlightenment bourgeois or secularly educated Europeans today, then everything falls apart. Reformation, French Revolution, or today's aggressive secularism don't happen because Catholic theology has been discredited, but because too many Catholics reject a childish faith that the Church has done too little to mature. Of course, this poses a bit of a dilemma for theology. On the one hand, it needs the authority of faith which comes from the Holy Spirit in the church. But on the other hand, it works only by questioning and arguing. So let's listen to what Thomas says about this long before the Reformation, the French Revolution, or today's secularism. He insists that theology is about arguing. He starts by opposing the saying of Ambrose, put arguments aside where faith is sought. He admits that arguments come either from authority or from reason, and that authority is the weakest form of argument, and so not worthy of theology, and faith has no merit if it deals with what we know from reason anyway. He claims that we argue from the articles of faith, two other things, and that the argument from authority is the strongest when the authority is God himself. We cannot dispute with someone who denies absolutely everything in the faith. But if he admits one thing, then we can. 
so we can discuss theology with Protestants, but not with a complete atheist. In fact, the same is true of many other subjects. If you reject all of their principles, no debate is possible. Thomas then says that grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. And so reason ministers to faith as the natural will, will ministers to charity. Theology is based on the canonical scriptures and then as probable arguments only on the doctors of the church. See what's missing here, these two things, the magisterium and personal experience. I'll talk about personal experience first. A lot of people insist on the importance of experience rather than theory. Usually it's their experience versus your theory. They know best. Often they don't really believe in papal authority and infallibility, but they do believe in the authority and infallibility of their own consciences. So what do we say to experience? If it just means my personal experience, I don't see how you can argue with me. And you simply can't do an academic subject based totally on subjective assertion. We have to be able to talk, to discuss. And my experience is peculiar to me. Yours may be better. It is certainly different. So is there no place for experience? Of course there is, but it has to include everyone's experience, even the church's experience. It's a question you have to face head on when you study revelation and morals. But it's a hard question, not a cheap way to win an argument. There's no mention of magisterium in Thomas either. Of course, he lived long before papal infallibility was defined. He believed in the authority of councils and of the popes. He would have seen them as authentic sources for tradition. He quotes the fathers very much, especially Augustine, but never as unquestionable. One of the harder things you have to do when you start theology is to learn not to believe everything you read in books, to develop your critical faculty. And the only way to do that is by losing arguments, just as you can't learn to play cards or fight without losing most of the time at first. This is perhaps where we can answer the question, why Maryvale? Maryvale respects the authority of the church, the teaching authority that applies even when non-infallible. Too many so-called Catholic theologians try to ignore it, or even seem to have no respect at all for it. But there is an opposite error too. Some places teach Catholic theology by making you learn everything the Pope teaches without ever asking whether there are any questions still left over. Some people did this when the Pope was John Paul II or Benedict XVI. And recently others seem to be giving the present Pope an authority that Victorian Catholics would have blushed at giving to Pius IX. But either way, it has two consequences. First, it plays into the hands of Dawkins and his friends, who claim that Catholic theology is merely ideology and propaganda, and so unworthy of recognition as an academic subject. But it also leaves you cold, hard and brittle. Cold because you feel you've been filled with material you haven't been allowed to digest. Hard because you think you know the answer to everything and can't sympathise with those who can't see how to follow the church's teaching. 
and brittle because you are likely to fall to pieces very quickly when you come up against someone who has got good arguments against the church's position. We are loyal to the church and to the Pope. We don't raise questions in order to show how clever we are or to shake our students up just for the fun of it. But we have to prepare them to argue for the church's position in a hostile environment, inside and outside the church. So they have to ask themselves some hard questions about how we understand the scriptures and the faith. And there's a risk here, as there is in any kind of training. Because learning to think and criticise, learning to be intellectually fit, is always painful and risky, just like learning to be physically fit is. Let's take another break there and think about all this before we go in to the home straight. A wonderful idea. Thank you, Father. So I'm, I've chosen a piece of uh, post-Trent um, music. This is by the wonderful composer Palestrina, and it's an Alma Redemptoris Mater. beautiful music of Palestrina. You're listening to Credo on Radio Maria and this is our second part of the Maryvale series with Father Michael Cunningham. Father, you're welcome to continue. Thank you very much. I'm going to leave Thomas Aquinas now and go on to our own century, to Pope Benedict. I hope I've shown that the questions we ask about the value of theology today aren't new and can be answered. And I make no apology for spending some time in the Middle Ages. One of the things theology forces us to do is to encounter other cultures, Hebrew cultures, Greek cultures, Latin cultures and the Middle Ages. 
We sometimes accuse Americans of being culturally ignorant, absorbed in their own world and unable to understand that there are different ways of doing things, even in today's world. But all too often we ourselves are very ignorant of past cultures. We look down smugly on the Middle Ages as if they were a thousand years of squalor, ignorance and violence. We count up all the things we know that they didn't. We don't notice the amazing and beautiful cathedrals they built using methods never known before. We look down on their education system compared to our magnificent secondary schools today. But we don't teach people to think and argue as thoroughly as they did. Someone once asked Harold Macmillan what use was all the Latin and Greek that he learnt at Eton and Balliol. He thought for a minute and replied, it taught us to tell when a chap was talking rot. Now Macmillan was a master of public speaking. I remember how easily he could have you eating out of his hand, agreeing with everything he said. Few English politicians can really do this. Perhaps more Irish politicians can. But most of us are not taught how to convince people, to convince people even when what you want them to believe may not be true. Maybe because if we were, we might be able to spot when it was being used on us. The medievals and the ancients called it rhetoric. To say nothing of logic and how to spot fallacies and false statements and bad statistics. Or dialectic, how to argue your case and respond to what someone else is saying. It wouldn't do any harm to our democracy to reintroduce a few medieval subjects into our schools. To say nothing of philosophy, taught in most European schools, but in few of ours. Which brings me to Benedict XVI and his famous or infamous Regensburg lecture, grossly, indeed fatally, misinterpreted in this country. Perhaps because British journalists haven't done enough philosophy. I would recommend you read the full text. It's only eight pages, easily downloaded from the Vatican website. All I can do now is give a few glimpses. Listen to this. Not to act in accordance with reason is contrary to God's nature. This is part of the argument against violent conversion used by the Byzantine Emperor Manuel Paolagos in 1391. The Pope is trying to argue why theology belongs in a modern university, not just in a Catholic university or a seminary, but in one that teaches all subjects and is open to everybody not to act in accordance with reason is contrary to God's nature. Only Catholic theology dares to say this. The view today is that only what science can prove from measurement is valid knowledge. Religion becomes completely subjective and unscientific. Benedict says that this represents a reduction in the radius of science and reason one which needs to be questioned. Do we ever wonder why modern science arose in the West rather than anywhere else? Might it be that it was because Christians believe that God and so the created universe are rational and so can be understood by reason? So theology has a right to be in academia. 
Indeed, it has to be there. I promised I'd end by saying something about how we teach theology and what it has done for so many of our students. I've already mentioned how diverse the subject is. It needs to base itself on honest philosophy because it involves attempting to understand the mystery of God and what he has given us. It also needs to base itself on honest theology, on honest history, sorry, because it involves attempting to understand how far the Son and Holy Spirit reveal themselves in human history and cultures. Understanding scripture means coming to terms with over a thousand years of writing in different times and places and how our scriptures got put together. If scripture is the soul of theology, then doctrine is its heart. You can look at Catholic doctrine in two ways. You can begin with God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, with the Son becoming true man while remaining true God. Or you can begin from our end with creation, fall, redemption and grace. We do both. Our kind of theology is more like law and medicine than, say, theology at Oxford. Catholic theology puts off specialisation, a bit like vocational subjects such as law and medicine. So students have to do a lot of different subjects with very little choice. And all this means that some of the depth that might be available in an English three-year degree has to be sacrificed. But like medicine, Catholic theology cannot be learned quickly. It still takes over 10 years to produce a fully qualified doctor of sacred theology. It all sounds very ambitious, but it works, even though many of our students start with no academic advantages. I've been looking at student work now for over 25 years, and I've been directing the programme for nearly 15. I know what our successful students have said to us, how it has shaped their outlook on life and deepened their faith. I can't imagine my life before I started this course, and it has inspired me to proceed further. I've seen students come in aged in their 50s who haven't done any academic work since they left school. I've seen them graduate with good degrees. Only this summer, one of our awards was to someone who had left school at 16 with almost no qualifications. He got a first. And all our awards have to be approved by our parent theology faculty in Paris to say nothing of external examiners and the alphabet soup of semi-governmental bodies that regularly inspect us. One of the worst problems in this country is negativity. People have far too little confidence about what they are capable of doing because usually they're never tested. Like the Open University, we at Maryvale have shown many people that they are capable of understanding much more than they thought they were. And in doing so, we have transformed their lives and their souls. And I hope, increased their capacity for eternal happiness. Well, thank you so much, um, Father Michael Cullinan. It's been wonderful to hear this um, overview of what studying theology through Maryvale might um, might be, and also, like you said, it is a it's little tidbits from a, a very vast and um, a wide ranging menu of things to come. And we're very privileged to be able to showcase some of these things on on the 
programs to come the same time um, each week over the next few weeks. I'd like to just take the opportunity. Um, we, we were going to have maybe some discussion time, but we've, we've run out of time. But I just want to take the opportunity to tell our listeners that they can listen to this again as a podcast um, if perhaps they've missed the first part of it or, or want to hear it again. And, and that will be available on the Maryvale website. And then again, I'd like to just um, welcome the Irish listeners from Radio Maria Ireland and say how wonderful it is to be able to share this, um, this broadcast with them. And um, perhaps I could squeeze in just a very small question. Uh, we have, you've mentioned uh, Joseph Ratzinger, um, the late Pope Benedict XVI. Would you, could you maybe just tell us what kind of impact he's had on theology um, over, you know, because we're now in a post-Ratzerian era? I'm not an expert on him. He was reading Newman in German in, I think, the 20s or 30s. Newman speaks of development, and of course this anticipates all the things that happened in the church in the 60s and 70s. Ratzinger was teaching in Germany at the time of the student upheavals in 1968, when a militant left wanted to force professors to teach everything they wanted to do, and I think this conditioned what he thought afterwards. He became more cautious, but he started off at Vatican II as a moderate liberal. What he was was an accomplished theologian and a kind man who could see the other person's point of view. John Paul II wouldn't see Hans Kuhn. Ratzinger received him when he became Pope. And that kind of kindness and openness is what I think we need in the church today at all levels. When there is a danger of another ideology in society and maybe in the church too, being reluctant to yield to discussion and examination. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to um, end. And, and I'm very, very grateful for, again, the series that Maryvale is doing. And we look forward to the next four. This is number two of six. And um, just want to thank you and the Maryvale team. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you very much for having me.